you got your Bibles, open up to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, I'll be there in just a minute. Last week, we were looking at the opening prayer uh, that Paul prayed for the Philippians, for their agape love to abound more and more in experiential knowledge and depth of insight so they would be able to discern and approve things that are excellent and best. And we all still have this very same need today because we live in a world increasingly filled with less than excellent and less than the best things. There are many ways to express love, but the highest expression of love is agape love. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul called agape love the most excellent way. And he went on to write, um, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not agape love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not agape love, I'm nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not agape love, I gain nothing. Agape love is a godlike choice to love that doesn't require reciprocation. It is a selfless, sacrificing love. And in 1 John 4, 16, it says, we can absolutely know and rely upon the agape love God has for us. God is agape love. Whoever lives in agape love lives in God and God in them. The Amplified says, those who dwell and continue in agape love dwell and continue in God. And God dwells and continues in them. By God's design, we have all been created to live in agape love with him. But we get to choose. We get to choose not only only to freely receive God's agape love for us individually, but also whether or not we will then live and keep on living within the context of agape love. Walking out and living in agape love is not always simple. Only with a growing base of personal experiential knowledge with how God loves us in Christ and through the Holy Spirit Do we learn to truly follow the way of agape love? To be able to practice agape love well, there will be things to learn and things to unlearn from our personal history related to what agape love is as well as what it's not. And we'll also have to stay continually open to discovering new insights and applications about discerning this God-infused, informed love with a depth of insight that helps us to be able to distinguish the differences between what's appropriate, generous, and supportive and what's just being taken advantage of. In addition to that, one time when Jesus was talking about the end of the age, he gave us a warning regarding agape love. Because of the increase of wickedness, the agape love of most will grow cold, but the ones who stand firm to the end will be saved. We need to recognize and understand that part of the agenda behind the increase of wickedness is to initiate a direct assault on agape love. Wickedness is a lawlessness that creates chaos and disorder and irresponsibility. The King James used the word iniquity. You know, sometimes we do, we, we miss the mark. We sin on accident. We don't know. We didn't know it. We, we just missed. But this that is talking about the increase of wickedness, the King James using the word iniquity, what it's highlighting there are willful choices to sin. Willful choices to miss the mark. Willful choices to settle for less than God's best. 
And then the Amplified added the words multiplied to lawlessness and iniquity, highlighting the tendency that once we give a little bit of space in our life to wickedness, for it to become habitual misbehavior patterns. At its core, wickedness is an expression of, I'll do it my way living. Totally disregards God and his ways. And beyond that, it even denies the existence of absolutes within moral and natural laws, which means wickedness is both intellectually dishonest and open rebellion against God. Anytime we tolerate or get involved in wickedness, we step out of the sphere of grace that God's agape love has created and established for us to live in. It talks about uh, each of us have been given a portion of grace as Christ has apportioned it to us. And so there's a, there's a sphere of grace that God has given us to live in. And, and we, it's not all the same. It's individualized what we have. And so that sphere of grace, God's intention is for us to completely occupy every bit of the grace that he has. And every bit of the empowering presence of God, he wants us to be the fullest expression of who he can be and doing everything that he's created us to do. So it's not, it's not enough to just go, oh, I've got a sphere of grace. I'm just going to stand in the middle because I'm afraid I might do something wrong. No, go find it. Go stretch it out. Go learn where the edges are. What happens if I go too far? What happens if I get too excited and I step out of the grace God's given me? Well, you step onto his mercy and his mercy will bring you right back into his grace because with his kindness, with his kindness, he leads us to repentance. However, sometimes when we get too zealous, we go too far. The mistake we make is we run back in the middle and go, oh no, I don't want to do that again. No, instead, just put a fence there. Just know that's the boundary on that side. Now let me go find the boundary on this side. Let me see what I can find over here. That's the adventure that God wants us to live in within his grace, the sphere of grace. And if we get too far, we step out of his grace onto his mercy, okay? Well, same thing. When we're living in a sphere of grace and then we choose, willfully choose to do something that we know we shouldn't be doing, that we know we shouldn't be part of, we step right out of his grace, but we don't step into his judgment. We step onto his mercy. Now, the trick there is because when we do something that we know we shouldn't do and we've stepped into that place and we don't get hit with a lightning bolt, our brain will sometimes tell us, well, maybe, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe, maybe God doesn't really mind. I mean, I know I didn't feel like I should do that. I knew it was wrong. I probably shouldn't have, but, but I didn't get struck with a lightning bolt. Don't misinterpret God's mercy as his endorsement. God hates sin. He hates it. He always has. He hates what it does to us. He hates what it does in the lives of people around it. But when we step out of grace in sin, we step into his mercy. And again, it's his kindness that leads us back to repentance. Well, what happens if we keep going into sin? Then you step into his judgment. But even in his judgment, it's seasoned with mercy because we never get what we fully deserve to get. He still tries to woo us back to mercy and from mercy back into our sphere of grace. The Bible is full of stories who of people who gave room for lawlessness and iniquity in their lives. Where there was repentance, God worked redemption and restoration, and he still does that today. Where there was no repentance, the consequences ranged from difficult seasons to sudden destruction, and that same thing happens today too. Suffice it to say, if we currently have an open door to wickedness in our lives and its practices, stop it. Close the door. Repent receive God's forgiveness and get back into following the way of agape love. When Jesus said, because of the increase of wickedness, the agape of love of most will grow cold, but the ones who stand firm to the end will be saved. His words can be read as a declaration, but what if, for those with ears to hear, Jesus was also announcing a better option? What if Jesus was calling out and giving an open invitation to any and all of his followers to have a totally different response to the increase of wickedness. 
He left room for a remnant. There will be some who do stand firm to the end. There will be some who endure to the end. Both those Greek words mean to stay under, to abide, to remain, to persevere with fortitude, even while undergoing and bearing various trials and sufferings. And Jesus said, those who do that will be saved. And again, the word there is sozo. Those who stand firm to the end, those who endure to the end will be saved, delivered, protected, healed, preserved, and made whole. Again, I shared this last week, but I just wanted to come back to it one more time because this invitation to not be part of the ones whose love grows cold, but to be of the remnant whose love stays fresh and firm, it provokes something deep. I think it woos each of us to be part of that remnant whose agape love does not grow cold. It exhorts us to be diligent about keeping the agape love in our lives fresh and fervent and to be part of encouraging and inspiring as many others as we can to do the same thing. How can that be done? How can we, in a culture surrounded by the increase of wickedness, live out a totally different experience where agape love keeps abounding more and more in experiential knowledge and in depth of insight in and through our lives. Psalm 37, verse one. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither and like green plants, they will soon die away. Before giving us some how-tos, David started with a couple of what not to do's. Do not fret because of evil men. We tend to think of fretting as being worried, which seems like a normal part of life that everybody does from time to time. So we too easily justify fretting. However, giving ourselves permission to fret is a mistake because it supplants a place of internal peace with internal agitation and irritation. And the fruit to root, the Hebrew word David used, when, when we give room for fretting in our lives, not only is it an internal agitation, irritation, actually the word David used means being kindled, burning, blazing up with anger. So actually we see fretting as just worrying. No, the root of it is anger. It's an expression of anger. It's, it might be showing, the fruit of it might be fretting, but if you go back to where it is a burning, blazing anger. Fretting is not neutral behavior. Charles Spurgeon once called it a common temptation. He said, many of God's saints have suffered from it. And then he said this, learn from their experience and avoid this danger. There really is no power in it. Do not fret because of evil men and do not be envious of those who do wrong. To envy means to be jealous. Being envious speaks of a feeling of grudgingly admiring and or a desire to have something that belongs to someone else. So you read in this context, do not fret because of me, don't be envious of those who do wrong. Why, why would we ever be envious of people who are willfully doing things that are clearly wrong or of people living outside the life-giving parameters of God's work and God's way. Why? Well, because sometimes it appears as if these evildoers are not only getting away with it, but it appears like they're prospering in it. But we know the truth. It's a short-term illusion and it will not last. Numbers 32, 23, be very sure of this. Your sins will find you out. I have to do is watch Dateline or 48 Hours or 2020. It's filled with these stories. People thought they were getting away with it. They're getting away with it. Looking good. Everything is going good. And then the walls come down. The fleeting, deceptive nature of what looks like worldly success and prosperity always gets exposed for what it is. So the passion says, don't think for a moment they're better off than you. They and their short-lived success will soon shrivel up and quickly fade away 
like grass clippings in the hot sun. Verse three, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. In these verses, David gave us five specific things that we can do as a way better alternative to fretting because of evil folks or being envious of wrongdoers. Instead, we can trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, enjoy safe pasture, and delight ourselves in the Lord. There's more here than I can unpack this weekend, but I wanna get started with the first four. Trust in the Lord. The Amplified says, lean on, rely on, be confident in the Lord. The Passion says, keep trusting in the Lord. One of the fascinating things that I found about trust in the Lord is we often really don't know what our level of trust is. I mean, we, we, we think we know, we, we, we're doing this, that, and the other. We think it's all solid and good. We really don't know until things go suddenly sideways. And when things go suddenly sideways, all of a sudden it's clear and evident where we are, how much trust we really do have in the Lord. And in this, uh, in this word that David used when he said trust in the Lord, the word itself means where do you run for refuge and how quickly do you go there? When things go sideways on us, we find out about our level of trust because who do we go to? Who is it that we run to when, when everything gets upside down or something we weren't expecting comes away? Who do we go to and how quickly do we go there? I mean, is on, on that list, is God number one, two, or three? I would say he should be one, two, and three. I mean, he's, he's the only way that has the way out. But a lot of times we have other things, other quote unquote support systems that we have in our life. And only when those aren't working do we turn to God. And that's, that's upside down. That's not trusting in the Lord. Trusting in the Lord when things go sideways, the first place, second place, third place we go is to him. He's the only one that has the answer. In Psalm 9, David wrote, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. He's a stronghold in times of trouble. And then he said something important. He said, those who know your name, those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. God has chosen to include so many of his names throughout the Bible. And every one of his names is an invitation into a know-by-seeing experience with God in that way. You don't just have to quote, he's my rock, my strength, my fortress, my deliverer. He wants to reveal himself. He wants you to have that experience, not just a head knowledge about that, but you felt that, you've experienced that. He's been that for you. And once you have that know-by-seeing experience with God, not by faith, he's my rock, I know he's my rock. He met me in that place. There was nothing else to stand on and God met me in that place. No one can ever take that from you. And every one of his names is an invitation to know him like that. So you can pick any one of his names. You can see any one of his names. And if you don't know him like that yet, start pressing into that. Because actually what David added here is those, the Lord hasn't, uh, those who seek him. He's never forsaken those who seek him. And our trust in the Lord deepens and strengthens as we seek him. And this word for seeking, so on the, on the one hand, trust in the Lord is where do we go? For, for a place of refuge and strength. But actually this word seeking is on the front side of that that sets us up to be going to the right place because this word seeking means to follow after, to follow hard after, to be in pursuit of. So in other words, when things are going well in your life, we're chasing after God. It's not like when things fall apart, now I gotta run to God. Now I gotta find him because my whole world's falling apart. I mean, he'll meet you in that place. 
but it's so much better on the front side. Before the world falls apart, when things are okay, we're chasing after him, we're following after him, we're pursuing him. That word seek can mean to seek, it can also mean to ask. It's pressing into his presence. We have open access to God. Because of the blood of Jesus, we all have access to God anytime, day or night, to cry out to him. And we don't understand things. We can cry out to him, we can ask him things. We can ask him questions. This word for seek specifically means to worship. And there is something powerful that happens when we're asking and we're seeking, we're following, we don't know, but we just have a song inside of us that just keeps playing and something that just keeps drawing us to the Lord, keeps reminding us of who he is. There's a song that's being played right now on Caleb by Rin Collective. Uh, our daughter Faith, was, uh, who lives in Albania, was in England a couple of weekends ago on a, on a retreat with some of the teachers from the school, and they went to see uh, Wren Collective Live, and, and I, I didn't know who Wren Collective was. I didn't know what kind of group it was or anything like that. Uh, but last Sunday, when I was coming home from church, Wren Collective was on the radio. I was like, hey, my daughter just heard them in England. But the song caught my attention. It's called Hallelujah Anyway, and it is a no-holds-barred, unconditional trust in the Lord. Here's some of what it says. I'll find a way to praise you from the bottom of my broken heart. Because I think I'd rather strike a match than curse the dark. Yeah, I'll find a way to thank you, though the bitterness is real and hard, because I'd rather take a chance on hope than fall apart. I don't think I'm ready to surrender to the dark. Even if my daylight never dawns. Even if my breakthrough never comes. Even if I'll fight to bring you praise. Even if my dreams fall to the ground, even if I'm lost, I know I'm found. Even if my heart will somehow say, hallelujah anyway. It's been a theme we've been singing about all morning long. You know, that first song, I raise a hallelujah. It's not, I raise a hallelujah in the gathering of the saints. It's I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies, right? I mean, it's one thing to worship together. It's powerful. We need to do it. But that's something else that rises up inside of us in the presence of our enemy. We're still worshiping it anyway. When we have nothing else to say, we don't have any words to say. Well, I throw up my hand and say, hallelujah again. That's where we ended this morning, right? And here's one more. Hallelujah anyway. David's son Solomon echoed and expanded on his father's words here in Psalm 37 in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge God. The more we trust, the more we recognize, the more we acknowledge God's hand and his spirit at work in, through, and around our lives every day, the more instinctive it becomes for us to lean into trusting in the Lord rather than leaning into trusting in our own understanding. We saw the chosen episodes four, five, and six on Friday night. A lot of powerful things in there, but I'm telling you, it's worth the money that it costs to go see the movie for a scene that's in there and a, and a theme that's in this series of things. Jesus is pouring out his heart to his disciples and he's sharing with them uh, who he wants them to be and what's coming up. And it's just shoop, shoop, shoop going right by him. And they're in the process still of coming up with their own ideas of, of what they should do or what would be a good idea. And the look on Jesus's face, the broken heartedness that it causes to Jesus when these guys that he's investing his life in keep choosing to lean on their own understanding rather than learning his ways. To get a visual of that look, I think could be worth the money because at times when you start to go your own way rather than God's way, all of a sudden you see that picture like, oh, no, I want to stay with him. I want, to, I want to lean into trusting in the Lord. I don't want to trust in my own understanding. Psalm 6, David wrote, offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. So 
our trust in the Lord is more than just a posture of faith. It is to be accompanied and affirmed with and by good and beautiful words and works. Right sacrifices are also offered with the right motive. It's not like, okay, God, I've been praying, I've been asking, I've been seeking. You're not really doing what I want you to do yet. So I'm going to fast. Boom. And that'll get you to do it. That'll make you do it. Because when I fast, then you're going to have to do what you haven't done. No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. There's no trump cards you can play on God to force his hand like that. I've fasted many, many times uh, throughout my life. And uh, there's been several times where I fasted on the, on the other side of it. I was just hungry, you know. But then there were other times when he specifically called me into a fast for a reason and a purpose. And the breakthrough came. So there's something in the obedience. It's the, it's the right motive, right sacrifices, things I'm giving up for the right motives, not as a way to force God's hand, but as a right motive. Right sacrifices bring honor and praise to God so that his glory gets demonstrated and revealed. Right sacrifices are an outward expression of an inward place of submitted surrender to not my will, but your will be done in me. And they require us to keep intentionally living in a right, in an active relationship with God. How do we know we're doing that? It'll be demonstrated in the integrity of how we manage our time, our talents, our finances, our speech, our work ethic, and all the relationships in and around our lives. Trust in the Lord and do good. This combination makes it clear that trusting in the Lord doesn't involve putting things in God's hand and then just abdicating our responsibility from being actively engaged in partnership with him every day. This Hebrew word for do good means to do or to make good in the broadest sense and the widest applications of the words. And it implies a constant involvement in being good and doing something good. Whenever wickedness abounds around us, that's all the more reason to endeavor to do good. We can meet wickedness of the world with an opposite spirit response by doing good. One of the best ways to keep ourselves out of complaining, chafing, and fretting about the mess our world is in is to keep ourselves engaged in doing good because that keeps us occupied with being part of things and doing things that are valuable and useful. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. The word dwell is about where we reside or permanently choose to stay or inhabit literally or figuratively. But the King James and the Amplified cast this admonition to dwell in the land as a result of doing the first two. It says, trust in the Lord and do good, so shall you dwell in the land. In other words, as we trust in the Lord, as we do good, it gives us the right, it gives us the roots to dwell in the land. God has each of us right where we are right now for a reason and a purpose. At this point in my spiritual journey, one of the dangers that I've seen in some people that are aspiring to live a spirit-filled life is a distinct unsettledness in where they are. There can be this incessant looking for or grasping for the next move of God that feeds a, a constant discontentedness. Instead, what if we chose to trust in the Lord, do good, and to dwell in the land by being fully present where God has us planted right now? What if we fully invested ourselves in the people and in the places and the things around us right now? What if we settled down and gave our whole self into what's on our plate right now 
rather than looking past it for something more or something new. Dwell in the land. Dwell in the land. Isn't that what Jesus modeled for us? John 1 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. That last part initially made me think of the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And as I was reciting that in my mind, the word makes me jumped out to me. The Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pasture. And it struck me how often God still patiently works with us. Even when we have to be made to lie down in green pastures that he's led us to and prepared for us. That got me digging for a book in my uh, library, uh, Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. Philip Keller wrote, the strange thing about sheep is that because of their very makeup, it is almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. They have to be free from fear, tension, aggravations, and hunger. And the unique aspect of all of this is that it's only the shepherd himself who can provide the release the sheep need from all these anxieties. And then I thought, goodness, the unique aspect to me is that with all those prerequisites, it seems like it's a miracle if a shepherd ever gets his sheep to lie down. Here's how Philip Keller brought it home to our lives. Our shepherd's concern for our care goes beyond our comprehension. And this life of quiet overcoming, of happy repose, of rest in his presence, of confidence in his management is something few Christians ever fully enjoy. But the good shepherd has supplied green pastures for those who care to move in onto them and there find peace and plenty. Help us be some of those, Lord. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. The King James Version says, dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. The Amplified says, so shall you dwell in the land and feed surely on his faithfulness and truly you shall be fed. The Berean study Bible and the New American, New American Standard both say, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. So that expands the point here by making us not only consumers of what God provides, but also accountable to be faithfully partnering with God in the work of actively planting tending and producing safe pastures. When David was a young 16-year-old shepherd, God himself declared David to be a man after God's own heart. Many years later, seasoned by a variety of things he experienced during his life, David wrote Psalm 37, and he gave us some important insights into keeping agape love fresh and fervent, even an atmosphere that's saturated with the increase of wickedness. Of course, Keeping agape love fresh and fervent won't and doesn't happen by accident. We have to make over and over again choices to live fret-free and without envy, even when the wicked seem to be prospering. More significantly, we have to keep curating the spiritual disciplines of making the over and over again choices to trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, and enjoy safe pastures. And all that sets the stage and positions us for delight yourselves in the Lord. I have a lot more in my heart to talk about that than we have time for right now. But let me just crack the door open a little bit. Delight can mean enjoying great pleasure and being highly satisfied with. And even in the Passion Translation of this verse, it says, make God the utmost delight and pleasure of your life. And to both of those, I'm gonna say yes, 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 yes. 
But interestingly, the actual Hebrew word David used for delight is all about staying soft and pliable in the hands of the Lord. I have an Andrew Murray quote framed in my closet that says, God is ready to assume full responsibility for a life wholly yielded to him. God is ready to assume full responsibility for a life wholly yielded to him. That's really what delight yourself in the Lord is all about. And that kind of yieldedness is how we stay soft and pliable. And by God's grace, staying soft and pliable keeps our expression of and our experience with agape love, fresh, fervent, and ever flowing in and from our lives until the end of this age and on into the age to come. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for the chance to be together in this house, worshiping you. And we thank you, Lord, for the agape love that you have poured into our lives. The, the only reason that we even know love is because you first loved us. But I just pray that you will fan into flame in our hearts agape love in fresh and fervent ways that, that we won't get pulled down by and lost in the headlines and in all the news and all the craziness going on around the world, all the stuff on social media and all those things that we, I pray, Lord, that you would help us from being consumed by that and just the, the weight that that would try to put on us and allow us instead to rise up inside with you, to be that remnant whose love is still living and fresh, to be those people who are doing good and an opposite response to that. Instead of just giving up and staying hopeless, we go, no, we're, we're part of the change. And the change comes because we love. We love, we love God and we love people. And so I pray you would just keep stirring that in our hearts, Lord, and that by your grace and with the help of your Holy Spirit, we would be some of those people walking on the planet right now, loving you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, no matter what. Hallelujah anyway, in Jesus' name, amen, amen.